You're listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the opinions, legal intent, or nature of Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions, Congress Wealth Management LLC, or their senior management. Please note that Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions is a division of Congress Wealth Management, LLC. Congress Wealth Management, LLC is an SEC RIA based in Boston, Massachusetts. For additional information about Congress Wealth Management, LLC, please visit our website at www.congresswealth.com or visit the Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website at www.advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching with Congress's CRD number 310873. Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions, Congress Wealth Management LLC, and their senior management believe this information in this program to be accurate and reliable but does not warrant it as to completeness or accuracy. Due to rapidly changing market conditions and the complexity of investment decisions, supplemental information and other sources may be required to make informed investment decisions based on your individual investment objectives and suitability specifications. This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such. No portion of this program is to be construed as a solicitation to buy or sell a security or the provision of personalized investment tax or legal advice. Investing entails the risk of loss of principal. Welcome to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host again, Ryan Carroll, um, and we want to welcome you to another episode. And today I'm, I'm super excited for many reasons, um, primarily because he's become a good friend of mine over the past few years through our, his work with Congress, uh, but more so also because of the sort of topical nature of um, having our guests on today, and that's Bill Lenning. And Bill is the head of the Institutional Advisor Channel at Thornburg. Um, a very well-known asset manager headquartered in New Mexico. Bill, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks, Ryan. I look forward to it. Awesome. Um, so we, what we usually do at the beginning of the calls, Bill, and and you know sometimes I attempt at um, introductions. I think you know our guests are the best people to talk about themselves and and give us a view into their career and sort of how they got to where they where they are. Um, so why don't you jump in and just sort of talk about your career prior to Thornburg and what got you there and and sort of what you do for them right now. Sure. Thanks, Ryan. So I've been in this industry for for a little over 20 years. I uh, went to Colgate. I grew up in Rhode Island, went to Colgate University in, in upstate New York, um, got out, started in the financial services industry right right before September 11th, which was an interesting time to do so for, yeah. for a lot of reasons. Um, I, I started, like many people in the Boston area, at Fidelity. So I was working in kind of a, a call center, which which allows you to learn about a lot of different things real quick. And then I would travel around the country at, at the old ripe old age of 23 and do employee enrollment meetings and uh, try to answer questions for 401k clients of, of Fidelity. So at that time, 
it was mostly uh, much larger uh, clients that had direct relationships with with Fidelity, but certainly a great learning experience. Um, from there, I, I went to a few different asset management firms where I, I um, work with financial advisors in a respective geographic area. Wholesaler wholesaling is the term that 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 most of us uh, know and yeah. utilize. <laughs> But I did that in Chicago, then in New England, covering kind of the Wirehouse Channel for about five years. In in 2008, I went to Putnam Investments and for the next nine years, helped them grow and establish kind of their their RIA business. Uh, Four years ago, there was a great opportunity at Thornburg to go uh, lead kind of their efforts there on the RIA side, which is a very important line of business for Thornburg. And it was also something where I, I, I was excited in, in that they have a, you know, they're a privately owned company. They have roughly, uh, you know, $50 billion in assets under management that is spread between fixed income and, and equities. Most of those equities tend to be global in nature, but it was a firm that was privately owned. Uh, and the, the founder, Garrett Thornburg, is still affiliated with the firm today. And then there's roughly 40 owners of the firm, including all the senior management. So in a world where there's been a lot of consolidation, it was a firm that had very good investment management, which is always something you you like to partner yourself with. But it was also a firm that was private, independent and looking to stay that way, which was very important for me. Interesting. Yeah. And, and Bill, as, as you know, I've, I've said on a few different podcasts, right, I'm a recovering wholesaler myself. So always like to, uh, you know, meet a fellow um, wholesaler uh, in the wild. What, you know, maybe let's start broad. And, and I think part of the podcast that we usually talk about is sort of the different themes and different perspectives that our guests bring. Why don't you maybe because you've had, I think, such an extensive experience on both sides of the coin between selling to broker dealers, selling into the wirehouses, um, and then, you know, working with, you know, independent firms, what is, I think the biggest difference between, you know, working with those two different types of groups from the wholesaler's perspective, what do you see when you look at a, at a wirehouse team and how they operate versus, you know, the independent advisor? Sure. I mean, the biggest, the biggest thing I think that that's different is, is kind of the, the field of play, if you will. So if you are, an advisor at any of the the larger wirehouses, you have a, a set of investment strategies that's been predetermined for you. Now you can sell away from that list, but these but the firms generally, um, you know, persuade you against doing that. So there are people at firms like Thornburg and other asset managers that are calling on kind of the research groups of these respective wirehouses and getting them to bless certain strategies. So there, you know exactly where you have good kind of product placement and, and then where you should spend the majority of your time. Um, as a as a wirehouse advisor, it's it's always been my observation that, you know, because a lot of that work is, is done behind the scenes, they may not need to focus as much or as acutely on what investments they're using and how they're effectively putting it together. Um, you know, a lot of that is, is again, done behind the scenes. So your job is, is to kind of, is to influence that, those decisions as, as you see, uh, as you think you can. 
going to the independent or the RIA side, you know, one being an RIA, uh, you all are fiduciaries. Um, and in addition to that, you know, the world is, is your oyster, if you will, of, of what investments you would like to source into different portfolios and for your clients. So it's much more of a consultative role trying to help RIAs understand, you know, that the, the things that your company does well, where they fit in, who they could work alongside of. Um, and that's whether it's an active investment, a passive investment, um, domestic, internationally, et cetera, uh, really how you can play a part in their portfolios, where they can expect it to outperform and, and where they expect it to possibly for competitors to outperform. Um, and again, that a lot of that behind the scenes work is is done on the wirehouse side where it is up to the individual RA to do that themselves. So, and, and I appreciate that, you know, it does obviously just from the structure of, of the, the wirehouse relationships versus the RA relationships, I guess, in your opinion, out of all the teams that you've worked with on both the independent and, and you know, the broker dealer side or the, the wirehouse side, do you, do you think there's a difference in the process of, way, of the way that, um, you know, those advisors or those teams on both sides of the fence sort of does it produce a different process or a different way that they would work with outside investment managers? Or, you know, I, I guess, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are, you know, probably listening in that, right, are maybe on one or the other side of this, of this divide, so to speak, right? People thinking about breaking away you know, who are in the process of doing it um, and maybe re getting reacclimated to, you know, not having that sort of firm view. So that's what I'm wondering is, you know, from review, being a part of that process, you think it's easier, harder, you know, is it better or worse, you know, on one side or the other? And, and what has your experience been with working, you know, on both sides of that? Sure. I mean, I, you know, initially, if we go back to 2008, right, the RA yep. business was very much in its infancy. And if you wanted to go out and start Carroll Financial at that point, yeah, um, there there was a lot of things you had to do individually by yourself, right? And, and it was a higher barrier of, of entry to where to where it is today. Hence, the reason why you saw few fewer people doing it back then. Yeah, um, you know, since then you've seen the entire industry make it easier for advisors to, to go independent or to start their own RA firm uh, with another option being, you know, rolling up or, or joining an established firm. So yeah. whether that's your larger custodians, Fidelity, Schwab, TD, Pershing, et cetera, you know, they have the ability to help firms do that, whether it's, you know, the aggregator type firms that now offer capital and funding. And a lot of these are private equity backed that yep. enable it from really just a capital standpoint of getting the business up and running um, to, to FinTech and, and different tech providers where they can provide kind of a, a tech stack compliance, et cetera, and, yep. and make it as easy as possible um, versus really what we saw when the industry was, what was just starting out. So, you know, I think that's been a big reason why you've seen people become more entrepreneurial and start their own firms. It's yeah. easier for them to do so. And there's less barriers for them to doing that. And, and, and them being concerned, not only about will my clients follow me, but also ma ma making sure that the client experience is also a very positive one. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
on the investment side, it's similar in that, you know, getting back to our previous discussion, the, the wirehouses, they carve out that niche for you, really, whether you would like it to be that way or not. Right. So you also have full autonomy where if you want to do things differently, you have the ability to do that. And if you think you see a better way of doing it, it's entirely up to you to do that. Now, there's plenty of advisors out there today. um, You know, as we've seen growth in the space, you've seen growth in the OCIO market and, 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 you know, different flavors of that where advisors could say, you know what? Now I want to go start my own firm. There's certain parts of this business I'd, I'd like to do, and there's other parts of this business I'd rather have somebody else do for me. Yeah. Um, and you know that that I think is only going to continue to become a growing trend as you know people continue to to make sure they're they're meeting their fiduciary liabilities one, but also specializing in the things that they do best. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I I think you know just looking back and reflecting back now, having had my own experience on sort of both sides of this, you know, um, obviously there are different ways to approach the same problem in some respects of how to create a good experience for the clients. How do I, you know, obviously put a good, you know, investment process together for the clients. And I guess that's, you know, maybe sort of where, where I'm going with the next question is, you know, based on all this experience, right. And this sort of overview of the, the two sides of this industry, when you think about working with RIAs directly in your business for either Putnam or for um, for Thornburg, you know what you know have you seen out there? Excuse me, in the field of of best practices, either when it comes to you know something like you know how a firm you know evaluates managers, right? How they put together their investment decision making, um, you know those sorts of things. If that, as you said before, right, could be a challenge for people, even in today's day and age, where, you know, if they're starting a new firm or they're just sort of growing and getting scale, right, you know, as an independent advisor, you know, that's obviously such a key part of the apparatus. You know, what are the best practices that you've seen, you know, for firms that you've worked with? Uh, yeah, thanks for the question. There, there are a number of different ways to do it, right? And a lot of it depends on the average size of the client. and the the different the different portfolio solution that that advisors are looking to put forth. I mean, I think what we've seen growth in, you know, re, even over the past ten years, right? We've seen the growth of ETFs. We've seen the growth of on the active side, separately managed accounts. Um, we've seen the growth of model delivery accounts. Is is something yep. that we're seeing today, especially for smaller clients. So depending on the size of the client and the type of exposure an advisor is looking to take, you know, there are a lot of different options than there were 20 years ago. So not only are you sitting there and saying, okay, now I think we should take exposure to something like emerging markets or, you know, domestic large cap growth, but you're also trying to decide, okay, should we do that in an active management format? Should we do that in a passive format? Should we do that in something that is a separately managed account or in a mutual fund? Uh, so there, there are just a lot of options that are available to try to maximize, you know, the best experience, both for the client for return and, and a tax standpoint. Um, I think the firms that that do it best are trying to first figure out, you know, a, there's there's a longstanding fidelity study, and I forget what year it was from, but 85% of the 
uh, of a return of, of a specific portfolio is depending on when the exposure to the asset class took place and 15% is, you know, what kind of vehicle or respective manager you ended up taking exposure in. Yep. Right? So we all know timing the market is incredibly hard, but that, that can also be uh, the single most decision that, that you can make, right? Yep. That aside, when you're looking at certain asset classes today, I think, you know, with our role at Thornburg, what we try to advise people on is, is what we effectively think we do well. So we are an active asset management firm. That's all we have ever been. Mm-hmm. And there are certain parts to the investable world that we think we can still have uh, substantial success in. And, and our history has dictated that. So whether that's in taxable fixed income, municipal fixed income, or for us, it tends to be more global and international equities. We continue to think that we can add alpha and value to a client's portfolio there. And, and it's how, you know, that's how we we will work with with our advisors to to try to show where where I think we can succeed. Yep. And, and, you know, again, you talk about sort of the different models and the different, you know, scale and how that sort of affects implementation. You know, from a time perspective, do you think, you know, are, is there are there trends that you see about how people are implementing? Right. If that is one of those sort of two, um, you know, most important things are, are people running just ETF portfolios if they have small clients? Are they running just ETF portfolios if they have larger clients or are people mixing active with passive and with, you know, other stuff. Is that are there any trends that you see there or how does that relate to maybe success of a firm or growth of firm? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's always challenging, you know, being in this business for, for over 20 years, I think it's always challenging for firms that that'll say uh, on the advisory side. And, and I should mention my wife has her own RA firm as well. So I, I see this very close to home. Um, <laughs> to, to, go, to go out and put a stake in the sand and say, you know, we, we think active is the greatest in, in, in every asset class, or we think passive is the greatest in every asset class, or a separately managed account is always going to be the best way to, to do something, uh, a hedge fund, et cetera, right? The, the world is continually changing and evolving. Prices and structure continue to change. So it's it's always keeping an open mind to to uh, the best way to take exposure in a portfolio for for any given client. Now, you know, when when we look at the world today, you know, when we look at what's going on with Russia and we look at what's going on in the Ukraine, it's a good reminder that, you know, passive investing is lower cost. There's a lot of great uh, benefits to invest passively. But when you're invested passively, you're you're taking a position in everything, obviously. And as an active manager, you know one of the things you're you're looking to do is not only figure out what 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 individual securities you like the most. It's also trying to figure out, for a large part of the uh, the equation, which ones you do not want to own. And you know, going back to to after two thousand eight and the uh, global financial crisis. Things moved in lockstep for for a number of years. You know, everything typically moved on and either risk on or risk off. Spreads across asset classes were, were very tight. And it was a time where you saw passive really grow considerably. And it has a very distinct value um, to its to its shareholders in, in what it was able to do. 
you know, it's it's our view, especially internationally, and again, in, in both, both taxable and municipal fixed income, that as interest rates continue to rise and, and you see more geopolitical events and, and volatility continue, um, there will be winners and losers, right? And it's that can be whether we're looking at finance companies, or that whether we're looking at energy companies, um, or, or what we are inherently looking at, there are geopolitical events and, and different monetary events that that will cause some of these companies to do better than others, right? And it, it's our job to figure out what we like in those respective sectors. And if we don't want to own them at all or in any specific countries, we effectively won't. And our, our track record has, has dictated that we can do, uh, you know, we can provide alpha for our shareholders by doing that. I, I greatly appreciate that, obviously, and, and, you know, this wasn't the intention of having you on here, right? But I, I can't help but ask and, and sort of bogart a little bit of your time and expertise, you know, what, what, um, what are we hearing from, um, you know, the Thornburg's resources and, and their intellectual capital about sort of positioning with, with everything going on and in a lot of parts of the world? I want to say, you know, certain parts, but it, it seems to sort of be touching a lot of parts right now. Yeah, so thank thank you for the question. You sure. know, Berg, as I said, on the equity side, has an expertise internationally, and that'll include uh, developed and, and emerging markets. You know, everything that's going on in, in Russia and Ukraine is is terrible from a humanitarian standpoint. When when you break it down to, to more of what are the financial implications, you know, I think what we're always trying to keep in mind of is not only um, positions that might be based in, in in Russia specifically, the whole industry is is trying to figure this out, especially yeah. on the active side. Yeah. But what are the kind of their second derivatives to to Russia and everything that is going on? Right. There are a number of different financial companies that have significant exposure there. There are you know whether it be manufacturing, energy, etc., companies that they do have significant businesses that are that are tied with Russia um, and Ukraine and you know, what is that going to mean for them going forward? And, you know, again, that that just allows us to evaluate the situation and say, okay, we are, we would be comfortable taking a position in some of these, or we would not, or we would want to stay out of them altogether. But at least that's a very active debate and discussion internally um, versus, you know, passive exposure, which again, has merits has many merits to it, but, but right now you're, you're owning everything carte blanche. Yeah. And, and just exposed to obviously the volatility, right. Of just, you know, perceptions and everything that come with a, a volatile time like this. So I, yeah, I think I mean, yeah. the, the other, the other interesting thing, you know, that the most headlines that you see are in Russia, Ukraine, et cetera. There is mm-hmm. plenty going on in China as well. And I know we've talked about this in the past, but there yeah. continues to be pressure, uh, political pressure on kind of the the big tech companies in in China. They've very much, um, they've had very good success coming out kind of a, the global financial crisis in, in what they've been able to to do domestically in China and grow huge customer bases. But now they face significant political headwinds. So. Again, what does that mean for them? Um, is that something that we want to take exposure or not? 
And then, you know, there are China, as we know, is the second largest global economy in the world. Yeah. So there, there are other areas that, you know, we can also discuss if we find those to be industry interesting. Um, you know, looking at at China is it's a country where they have significant environmental concerns, and that's something where the government is is looking to lessen those. So, you know, it's it's our thought and the thought of I know others that whether it's electric vehicles or it's you know the elimination of smog, being able to produce cleaner air, cleaner water, etc. Um, you know, are there opportunities there that that we like that we think will be, uh, you know, have the kind of cyclical tailwinds behind them for for many years to come because the country effectively needs to get their environment in a better place? Yeah, yeah, those those sort of ESG or or you know those sorts of themes we definitely consider and. In some of our strategies and, and you know, Thornburg is a great place for that. I guess, you know, Bill, so building off of um, and maybe to close up a little bit to build off of instead of just from the investment side, you know, out of all the different firms, you know, you'd worked with, you know, across all the different geographies. What are maybe just some like things that have stood out of your career as like a best practice, right? You saw a firm that did something really well, I think, you know, for us in the audience, right? You know, that's a big challenge for a lot of advisors that can be you know, to create that differentiator, that niche, uh, whether it's a, it, an internal process or, you know, sort of a, a client group or or something, you know, that they do. Um, what stuff has stood out to you that you said, wow, that's really cool. Or, you know, these guys really have thought through this and it's actually, you know, something great that you've sort of just seen. Yeah. I mean, I think it's to, to use the word that you just said, it's it's your niche, right? It's finding your niche and then devoting yourself to it. So, I think one of the reasons that that we all enjoy working in financial services is we work with a lot of smart driven people, but that also means that's that it's competitive, right? And that that's either on uh, the advisory side or on the asset management side alike. So, you know, what can you do to to carve out that niche and and be well known? Um, you know, there there are many firms that we've had the pleasure of working with, where, you know, whether it's Hey, we we really want to get our story out to to more women. So once a month, we are going to host, which at one point was in person. Things evolved to being on Zoom. Hopefully, go back to in person in time. You know, a an event that has nothing to do with finance, but has to do with you know whether it's people's mental health or uh, their their personal financial situation. Um, dealing with mortgages, credit cards, interest rates, what all yep. that means to them. Yep. Just, just trying to find different ways where you can get the story out to people of, of what your firm does, how much you value your clients and how you're really looking to be a coach, right? In life, right? Yep. You're looking to, you're looking to co coach them and teach them things that will make them better people and, and, you know, have better, smarter financial decisions for them and their family uh, versus somebody that's that's just there to, you know, maximize their portfolio return. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, that is definitely a really powerful theme, you know, and I'm sure some of the advisors, you know, that are listening obviously have to be, you know, not faced, but are are trying to uh, build out their practice just beyond, right, the, the sort of nuts and bolts. Um, yeah. Which, you know, again, is a good thing for both client and firm alike, I think. Right. And there's different ways to do that, right? Whether it's, 
Um, you know, you see different firms, whether they're involved in, in, in different groups around their community. Um, there are plenty of firms that we're affiliated with where somebody has some sort of a teaching role, whether it's at a local community college, mm -hmm. teaching CFP courses, they're teaching um, SEMA, you know, my designation. Series, yep. My series 24 teacher was also coincidentally a local RIA. Huh. Um, and, and, and these are these are things that I think these people like doing. They like being in that teaching role. But again, it it further gets their credibility and, and free advertising out there for, for what they do in their firm to to a broad audience. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any sort of community events like that, but that's just a great one to, you know, also probably build, um, you know, finding employees, right. You know, people like yourself who are in the industry as well, right. Whether it's on the wholesaler side or the advice side or the client service side, right. Any of those sort of licensing or designation type things, right. You meet, you can just network with a ton of people. Um, yeah. And, throughout and that, that for both, you know, teacher and student. Sure. And it's, it's also, you know, the one thing, that the RA world did not have when it first started versus, you know, kind of your traditional wirehouse structure was a group of people in the office together that were doing the same thing that you were, where you yeah. could often bounce ideas off of, you know, you, you could, um, you know, look for advice and, and have that. Now, yeah. I think the industry has grown to a point where there, there's a lot more of that today, but I think that the strongest firms that we know and the firms that are excellent at what they do, they, they keep a great, uh, you know, a, a great structure out there of firms that are like-minded. You know, they, they don't have to be obviously geographically in the same place that you are, but even if they are, right, it's, there's a lot of potential clients out there. So it's, it's sharing best practices, not being afraid to do that and, and seeing how everybody can grow together. I mean, that's something that we do on the asset management side quite often. You know, there's there's many things that Thornburg's good at. There's plenty of others that we're not involved, right? So there's there's always uh, that relationship on our side as well. For the audience, you've been listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. If you have any questions about this program, have any questions for Bill that you'd like to follow up on, please feel free to reach out to us at Four Advisors at congresswealthadvisorsolutions.com and we'll try to get you some answers or get in touch get you in touch with bill we appreciate everyone being on and, and listening to the podcast and subscribing and we'll talk to you again soon